Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartan, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. on the web at seu.edu slash apex or email us at seuapex at icloud.com. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. We are here in the studio today. It's 3 p.m. And so this is Dr. Lynn Vartan. And joining me in the studio is Dr. Ravi Roy. Welcome. Thank you, Lynn. It's great to be here. So cool. You are our first live guest in the in the studio. How do you feel? That's quite an honor, and it's really cool studio, so this is great. <laughs> it is indeed. We're here in the Student Center. It's uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with the building, it's completely open, and students are walking by, and it's our main thoroughfare. Well, we had a great morning so far today, and Dr. Roy gave his 2018 Faculty Distinguished Lecture, and he's probably breathing a sigh of relief for a more casual discussion here, um, but we'd love to just kind of get into it, and I'll just kind of ask some questions, and we'll see where the conversation takes us. Would you mind giving those at home listening just kind of a little uh, introduction to your life and career? Sure. Um well, um, as I approach 50 years old now, it, I'm, I'm reminded that I've been teaching for about 20 years at the university level, which is um, kind of humbling <laughs> when you think about it <laughs> yeah. and you look back. Um, but uh, yeah, so I grew up in uh, Los Angeles, California, and, um, and something we have in common, obviously, is That's our experience exactly right. at Cal State Northridge, mm-hmm. where I was an undergraduate for two years and then transferred to UCLA. And from there, I went to Claremont uh, Graduate University and took my uh, Master of Arts in Public Policy and then uh, my Ph.D. And um, long story short, I've been back to CSUN a couple of times to at first teach in their MPA program, Master of Public Administration program, and and to run it. Um, uh, Before I I did that, I was here for a couple of years, uh, about 14 years ago. Uh Oh, wow. Um, And then um, in the interim... I spent about three years in Melbourne, Australia, teaching there and back here in southern Utah. So wow. Well, I have so many questions for you, but let's start with Melbourne. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience there and what you did and maybe, you know, some of your takes on, on life there. Yeah, well, um, I think um, the surveys uh, show that, you know, uh, a lot of Americans have a very positive view of Australia and about, and about Melbourne in particular. I know I did uh, growing up being a huge George uh, Miller fan um, of the Mad Max films. And uh, yeah. we ended up moving to a suburb that's pretty close where they filmed the original Mad Max. So that oh, no cool. way. Yeah, yeah. So did you visit the set? Um, you know, the, 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 the police station, for example, is the uh, Spotwood Ironworks. Um, oh. And then the uh, University of Melbourne parking garage is where they kept the interceptor in that, <laughs> in that movie. So, yeah, I mean, I got to be quite familiar with all that stuff, which I thought was really cool. That's so. cool. Do you have pictures of yourself there? I don't. I'm not a big picture fan. Oh, I mean, no. those, who, those who know me, they've seen my, um, my dumb phone that looks like something that popped out of 1992. So <laughs> I, I don't I, my, I, I don't even... 
if my phone can take pictures, um, um, I certainly don't use it. So, oh. <laughs> well, you have those mental pictures, right? That, those That's are right. just as valuable. That's right. And so what kind of work did you do while you were there? Um, I went there to teach uh, international development, which is uh-huh. a related field to public administration in the kind of global arena. Mm-hmm. And uh, while I was there, I was promoted pretty quickly to run the, uh, the master's program in international development. And I also uh, was at the, a research uh, center there. Um, it's a place called RMIT uh, University, um, which is... Uh, you know, kind of uh, small uh, university, only about 90,000 students on any given day of the week. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. In all seriousness, no, it is the, it is the largest uh, university in Australia. It, it, it competes in size of population with probably University of Michigan, Ohio State, this kind of thing. Uh, that's amazing. And do you, you know, comparing, do, do you like that huge campus? I mean, does it just breathe with excitement or is it a little overwhelming or... So it's, it's um, RMIT uh, is in the central business district of Melbourne. And so they, uh, it's very much organized like NYU. You really don't know you're on the campus. Ah, I see. So the buildings are numbered. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, they're, and they're peppered throughout the central business district of Melbourne. Uh-huh. Um, so really, uh, Melbourne Central Station is kind of like, uh, well, as our dean used to say, we should just call that RMIT Central because really that's... <laughs> right. <laughs> that's so, you know, that's right across the street. That's our property. Yeah. And we, we're, we're responsible for a lot of the foot traffic and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Well, how did you find the students in terms of these topics um, and maybe how do they compare to students in the U.S. in these topics? So, I mean, uh, students uh, in Australia, I think by nature, um, are a little bit more aware of oh. international issues. I see. Um, that's changing. Um, uh, uh, more and more as more and more uh, millennials uh, do travel, study abroad, um, their careers are taking them abroad. Um, Australia uh, really is, to characterize it correctly, is more Australasia. Oh, okay. And so they're kind of um, already integrated. I mean, their nearest neighbor is Indonesia. It's like um, as close as our Mexico. Right, So, right. Um, you know, they, they travel abroad, um, you know, for vacations, to study abroad. And, and so um, there is already, there was earlier on, I think, a focus on the global in Australia, but we're catching up. Mm-hmm. So great. Sure. That's great. And any plans to go back? Would you like to spend more time there? Well, my youngest was actually born there, so we have oh. an incentive. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did get an Endeavor uh, fellowship, which is kind of uh, like a Fulbright um, mm-hmm. uh, from their uh, government last year. So I did spend, I, I got the opportunity to spend a, a month there last December. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order to uh, make sure I stayed in the good graces of my wife and kids. I arrived back on Christmas Eve to make sure that I was back. Good for you. Good for you. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I also am interested in your travels to Indonesia. I know you've, you've worked with some officials there and you have a great award from the president there. And can you talk about that project, the Indonesia Toward 2025, I think yeah. it's called? Yeah, so in 2010, um, his Excellency uh, Cecilio Bombong uh, Yodhoyonu uh, had established, I think it was in 2009 actually, uh, the Indonesian Defense University. And the whole idea was to uh, bring in uh, kind of international scholars and I working see. with the, uh, an outfit uh, in part with uh, the Germans. 
And uh, they had a really great conference there. And I was uh, invited to represent Australia in that mix. And so uh, the idea was to bring in a kind of um, international perspective of where Indonesia could go strategically and so forth. Um, uh, there was also uh, a large part of this was a PR. Mm. Uh, I mean, a meaningful PR, not just a lip service PR, but a meaningful PR to restore Indonesia's credibility, particularly with countries like uh, Australia, who were very much um, involved in the uh, conflict with East Timor, which had occurred, um, you know, a few years prior to that. I see. And so that was um, that was uh, a very um, painful situation yeah. uh, there. And uh, this was SBY's uh, um, investment, I believe, to uh, integrate Indonesia at that time more within a global conversation, mm -hmm. a more collaborative conversation. And based on that, um, uh, there was a uh, summer school series, short intensive courses, day-long type of thing, and they invited me back again. Again, now it was a few months later. I think the first 2025 conference was in March of 2010. I was invited back then. And, uh, Sometime in June, I think it was. Mm -hmm. How so. do you feel it's progressing? Is it is it working their their achievement toward those goals to be more collaborative? In your opinion, so that, that, that's a that's a good question. I um I haven't uh, unfortunately stayed as connected now having uh, left Australia uh, back in 2011. Obviously, regime changes have happened right uh, there. So um, it'd be interesting to revisit that. I just haven't had an opportunity. Yeah, um, sure. Given, but uh, but at that time. Um, there was a genuine conversation about the desire to do this and concerns that it might ultimately not work, which was very interesting mm. to have that kind of open dialogue with members of the military. Um, oh, wow. Defense minister was a graduate of UC Berkeley. Oh. Um, you know, so we, you know, I'm being from UCLA, we had that UC connection yeah. in common history. I think he was saying that one of his children was also a graduate of UC as well. Uh -huh. So it is true what they say about the uh, Berkeley Mafia and the Indonesian <laughs> government. It turns out that that's not just uh, a fairy tale. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, looking a little bit more homeward, um, I know that you are very interested in, in uh, global studies and, and opportunities for students in that way. And I know that we are working really hard at SEU to increase um, students' experience internationally. And can you talk a little bit about the importance of that as it resonates with you and some of your opinions about our students and their connection to the to the global society? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll take this opportunity to make good to my colleague, uh, Dr. Angela Pufunai, who's director of the MPA program, uh, to express, um, as part of our accreditation uh, with the network of public affairs, public policy, and administration schools accreditation that we enjoy with our Master's of Public Administration program, one of the things that we were lauded for in that accreditation process, which was a lengthy process, was our experiential learning. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that was our deep involvement in study abroad. And uh, uh, Angela, uh, Dr. Pufunai, and Dina Marshall, who is the uh, 
coordinator of the program. They're leading up a study abroad along with um, some other professors this summer to do um, all the countries that are part of the UK, as long as there is a UK. Oh, great. And <laughs> so, do you know, is that study abroad still open? Yeah, for as far as I know, it's still open. So Okay, so, so anybody out there interested? I mean, that's all the, the, you mentioned all the countries in the UK. Yes, that's correct. And so students probably could still register for that if they wanted to. Yes, um, with those courses, absolutely. So, you know, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, uh, Scotland, uh, England, Wales. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, they're, they're really uh, doing the full treatment. And it's a mixture uh, because our MPA program has a focus particularly in um, student affairs. Uh-huh. And so they're making sure to visit government institutions, but also educational institutions and building those kinds of connections and networks and so forth. And so I think it's going to be a fantastic uh, experience. Oh, that's great. Well, you heard it here. If you're interested in getting into some of these summer study abroads, I know there are so many more being offered, so we can check that out. All right, we're going to take a little break and listen to some music. That's the other kind of thing with this show, um, that I like to kind of show you some new music and some new styles and new genres. Today we're going to be listening to three different tracks from an album um, that Hilary Hahn, a wonderful violinist, uh, did a couple years back that were all encores. They're all encore length pieces, and she received submissions from, I think, I don't, some large number, 150 different composers. And then she chose um, just 29 to be on an album. And um, a few of them, I think, are really interesting. So the first one you're going to hear is Light Moving. And this is composed by David Lang and performed by Hilary Hahn and Corey Smythe. And you are right here on Thunder 91.1 KSUU. Thank you. 
All right. Well, that was a piece called Light Moving, and the composer is David Lang, and the performers were Hilary Hahn and Corey Smythe, and that's off the album 29 Encores by Hilary Hahn. This is Dr. Lynn Vartan, and this is the Apex Hour right here on Thunder 91.1 KSUU. And I'm in the studio today with Dr. Ravi Roy, our 2018 Faculty Distinguished Scholar. Welcome back. Thank you. So I'd like to get into a little bit of conversation about your awesome talk today. And um, one of the questions I asked on stage, we were talking about, um, you had said that your talk has this healthy dose mm -hmm. of cynicism. Um, maybe talk a little bit more about that, how you view that sort of cynicism and where it comes from. I know you alluded to that this morning. Mm -hmm. And then also ways to sort of get out of that and ways we can look forward and maybe just go off on that for a little bit. Yeah, so thanks. So healthy dose of cynicism, I think, is healthy for any democratic republic. I mean, its whole basis of you know, focus on liberty is that we always need to be concerned uh, about that. Uh, on the other hand, um, where we are uh, now, my cynicism in part, um, uh, speaks to the fact of how uh, public trust has been waning. Um, and specifically, uh, public trust as it speaks to uh, trust in political institutions mm -hmm. and the public sector, which seems to not just be towards politicians, but also to those in uh, rank-and-file public service uh, positions. I right. Mean, it's, it's always, in, I mean, there are several paradoxes. I mean, one is um, it's interesting the kind of, uh, from a public point of view, the uh, kind of negative attitudes generally towards public education. Mm-hmm higher education, yeah, and yet the private sector demands a college degree for any kind of advancement. Exactly. So that's an interesting thing to me that you would value a degree, that the product that we produce, mm -hmm. and have um, in some cases right out disdain for those who are producing the product. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I really wonder about that because y sometimes we think that, you know, now everybody goes to college mm -hmm. and s that perhaps that that's not necessarily for everyone. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I mean, I wonder sometimes w about this this conundrum, because, mm -hmm. of course, every organization, every business is demanding. a co Many are demanding a college education, mm -hmm. but yet there is this disdain that is the same in politics, but we're finding in, in higher ed as well. Mm -hmm. What do we do about that? So that's a, that's a really good question. I think, first of all, we need to recognize, I think, what I'm calling the kind of uh, polyphrenic or schizophrenic uh, attitudes that we have towards things and try to understand where that comes from. Because in, in, in some cases, it's valid and legitimate. Mm -hmm. In other cases, um, you know, it comes from an emotional base without thinking through logically well, where do these views come from? I mean, how, how do I reconcile these apparent contradictions in my own thinking? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're all prone to myself in included. Um, another example of, of the paradox is that I tried to bring up there, and I'll try to add a little more to it, is that since the 1960s, we've seen uh, government expanding. Right. But it isn't expanding in a vacuum, and it's right. not doing it... Um, uh, by fiat power alone. Some of it is, but, you know, we see that with the administrative state and expansion of regulatory power and there are legitimate concerns about overreach and all the rest of this. I'm not trying to um, dismiss that out of hand. On mm -hmm. the other hand, 
we expect government to do more and more for us, provide more and more for us. And in response, in democracy, naturally, government is going to respond. And it's been growing. Now, the paradox is the more government grows in an attempt to meet our expectations, during the same period since the 1960s, the less happy or satisfied we are with the job that government is doing, and we respond by demanding more of government. And the interesting thing to me is, is that, let's take 9-11, for example. When it happened, um, the criticisms of government were, um, some were valid, some were unfair. Government was asleep at the wheel. Why didn't they know better? Why didn't they protect us and all the rest of this? And again, I mean, you know, some of that is valid. So government responds by doing something historic, creates an Office of Homeland Security that then becomes the Department of Homeland Security. We're not unique in this. I mean, uh, most democracies have some kind of Ministry of Internal Affairs, Home Affairs, or whatever. We came late to the table with that one. I think that goes back to our founding and our healthy suspicion of the idea that we need to, uh, some kind of domestic protection. Mm -hmm. But it does. Uh, we empower uh, the NSA to, uh, to uh, uh, get involved and try to preemptively uh, protect us. It does. We see the expansion of a new program of TSA. And how do we respond to that? We complain about TSA and the lines we have to stand in and about the job that they're doing. Right. We respond by uh, uh, oftentimes getting upset with the uh, abridgment of our privacy. Mm -hmm. We get upset with the amount of money that the uh, Homeland Security and its related agencies uh, are taking up of resources. So it's almost as though government can't win. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. we demand these things, government responds, and then we're um, upset with the job that it's doing. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that government shouldn't work better. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that we, uh, we shouldn't expect government to work better. It's our tax dollars uh, at work, to be sure. But then the question becomes, uh, and I raise this in the talk as well, if people, if people are not willing to give their faith and trust and support in government to do these things, where does it find the mandate to do them? Yeah. How, where does the potency of government come from or the public sector come from? If we're eviscerating higher education and budgets of higher education, which Utah, thankfully, um, has done, to my mind, uh, relatively speaking, a wonderful job of mm -hmm. protecting higher education, because if you look at other states, in the union, um, you know, it's Michigan or Connecticut. Right. I mean, that those are uh, places where, uh, you know, it's 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 it's, it's quite sad. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we do all right here, relatively speaking. Um, but then we're surprised when public higher uh, uh, education, higher uh, institutions of education, um, you know, they're not meeting the expectations in terms of the knowledge base for the students that we're creating for the, for the, for the labor market. Mm -hmm. um, well, that seems kind of interesting. Um, you're saying you need this product again. You don't think it should be funded necessarily or you, your criticisms about how we fund it and the things that we're doing. Um, but I think uh, part of it is uh, we expect government to fail. Um, if you think about how many businesses, private businesses in this country fail, um, and how much of that slack the public sector takes up in terms of unemployment benefits, in terms of um, our court system with bankruptcy, and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm not saying government versus business, but I'm just saying that there is 
uh, an almost an expectation that government can't work. Mm-hmm. And then we, uh, we criticize government, which is fine, uh, but then we do very little to try to make it work effectively. Yeah. I mean, that's just such a clear explanation of the problem. Do you have opinions about what could be done better that you'd like to share? <laughs> well, I think self-awareness is a big part of it, to mm-hmm. realize that at the end of the day, our Constitution you know, is very clear, and it is embedded in a philosophy of consent of the governed. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't mean that day-to-day every single uh, citizen is going to go to work you know, uh, fixing these problems actively. But what it does mean is that generally inaction is, is tantamount to approval. Um, if we really want things to work better, um, we really have to be part of the solution. Mm. And part of this, as I tried to emphasize there, is uh, first of all, we need to be aware of our own limitations and our own contradictions. And then think about how we can have constructive conversations across sectoral lines, private sector, public sector, and look at it as a system. That's the first thing, that they're not two separate things that are necessarily have to be um, uh, binary. Mm-hmm. They can work together. And that's an ideological barrier that many of us have to get over. But these conversations are challenging. They're so hard to have. I mean, we were just speaking even... Uh, about this in Faculty Senate, how to have healthy conversations and how to exchange ideas. And it it does seem harder now than it did 10 years ago, 12 years ago. What recommendations do you have? I know we touched a little bit on this earlier, but I would love some tools to help have these conversations and and begin these dialogues to, to start talking more and interesting conversations, curious conversations, exchanges of ideas, mm-hmm. even disparate ideas. Mm-hmm. How, how do we do that? Yeah, unfortunately, we've, um, we've moved increasingly to a place where we have um, allowed those issues that separate us to dominate our thinking and construct our dialogues for us. And as a result, the language in which, we, the discourse in which we've communicated with one another, for example, between political parties, uh, has become vitriolic. It's become unproductive. It's led to gridlock. Um, and, you know, once, once people start painting the other as bad people, you've automatically shut down the dialogue. Right. If I say, well, I know you want the best, and I do too, we just see things fundamentally differently. Let's have a conversation about that. Mm-hmm. Um, where can we come together on a consensus about, first of all, what are the problems? What priority are those problems? Because we can say, yeah, all these things are important. Deficit's important. Tax reform is important. But we need to, we need to, to have a conversation about which things we need to um, address first, which are the most pressing, and then be able to have a policy dialogue. Um, it's interesting because the, one of my colleagues showed that of those people that were uh, interested in issues, they voted for Donald Trump. That's one, um, you can argue with that data, but that's what he was able to show. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting in, in that study was talking about the issues, but no policy content or very little policy content of right. behind those issues. So talking about issues is one factor, but getting into a constructive dialogue to the nuts and bolts 
and the more difficult conversation that moves beyond ideology of issues and start talking about public policy. Now, that's, that's something I think that we have a long way to go. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I am concerned, deeply concerned, as I shared in my uh, lecture, I made no boins, uh, bones about it, that uh, we need to get back to that space. That's... I completely agree. That's a great way. That's a great way of putting it. It's true. It seems maybe easier to have these ideological conversations, but but exactly right. Without constructive discussion of policy to actually try to fix something, where where are we? So, okay. Well, it's time for another little musical break. Um, we're gonna revisit that Hilary Hahn and Corey Smythe album. Uh, and the piece that we're going to listen to, again, this is a violin and piano encore type piece, so short and sweet, if you will. And this one is called Ford's Farm, and the composer is Mason Bates. And you are listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. Okay, and that was Ford's Farm. And uh, the composer of that piece is Mason Bates, and the performers were Hilary Hahn and Corey Smythe in Hilary Hahn's Encore, 29 Encores, uh, which is just a fantastic album. Uh, all of encores that she commissioned and uh, chose from a pool of over 100 uh, and then put together with uh, the great pianist Corey Smythe. I'm Dr. Lynn Vartan, and we are back here in the studio uh, with Dr. Ravi Roy. Uh, 
who was our Apex speaker, speaker today. And this is KSUU Thunder 91.1. Welcome back. And we're just continuing this great conversation about trust uh, in the political arena and uh, topics of democracy and global awareness and global politics. I was curious, you know, it's kind of a, a you were saying if we don't fix something, then the potential for democracy to go away is a, a real threat. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit about that danger a little more? And then maybe are there any models in history that we should be looking at as, hey, watch out, this is getting close, or mm-hmm. hey, this is one we should really check out and try to mimic? Yeah. So um, I think it's, first important to look at this conceptually that the that the end goal is liberty democracy is a means to an end not an end uh, we've seen throughout history the most tyrannical regimes come about through democratic elections oh right um, you can see this and that's in just that's an amazing statement <laughs> I mean the gravity in that is something yeah um, populism fascism um, these all things can result uh, through uh, uh, a populist campaigns um, where there is not a consensus, a middle-of-the-road consensus. And I'm not saying that we're there yet, thankfully. But, yes. But, this, but this, this, this trend we're on, this direction we're headed, where we're refusing to uh, have a consensus and a discussion across party lines where, you know, yeah, I remember it was a huge thing back in the 90s when there was a government shutdown and then Obama came in and there was more government shutdowns. Like, well, it could be again. Um, some people would say that these kinds of impasses are the natural uh, tension that exists between a separation of powers. But I think the emphasis should be on the word system. This is not, it's a system of separation of powers. Mm-hmm. It's not, uh, it is um, to a certain extent, uh, uh, separation, but it's also more about separate institutions sh- that ought to be sharing powers and sharing consensus. Right. And I am concerned that uh, that mindset isn't there. I mm-hmm. mean, it seems like the political parties, which now control the uh, agendas in Congress rather than the congressional leadership as it used to be are more concerned with derailing the opposing side's agenda than they are trying to find a consensus to work together even if they don't get everything they want. They're more concerned with inhibiting the other and destroying that agenda than they are about saying, okay, now what kinds of things, I mean, things are dead on, you know, uh, legislation bills are literally pronounced dead on arrival simply because they're coming from the other side. It's scary. And um, that's just not who we are. That's certainly not what's, you know, we've got to remember this republic, democratic republic, is a wondrous and uh, amazing experiment. And that's exactly what it is. It's also extremely fragile if we are not careful. I was mentioning in my lecture, we owe so much to the French and French ideas for our notions of liberty and about the things that underpin it. And those things are well recognizable in our Constitution. But I would also remind people that the French are on their fifth republic. Mm-hmm. We're on our first republic. And so there's no, there's no guarantee. Right. Um, it's not axiomatic that this is who 
this has been maintained through a, uh, a conscious and deliberate effort to, uh, and, and, and in some cases a lot of sacrifice to keep us. Right. And we shouldn't squander that legacy, right. in my opinion. How close to the precipice do you think we are? Do you think we're we're we should be concerned, very concerned, moderately concerned? What do you think? Or do you? I mean, it's okay if you don't want to comment on that as well. Of course. Um, as an academic, um, and most academics got the last election prediction wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm saying this in all humility. Um, I, I don't like to give timelines or uh, definitive uh, things on that in terms of at this time, but I will say this. Um, a major crisis, which could come up at any point, could certainly uh, hasten the pace um, towards the wrong, wrong, wrong direction. And if we're not careful, we need to be, uh, you know, Madison warned us about this, that during trying times, that uh, you know, factional interests will seek to maximize their own side at the expense of the republic. Mm. He was he was deeply, and yet at the same time recognized that factions were a reality and part of the process too. So we got that balance. But I think we need to recognize that and not take it for granted. I think we need to be vigilant and concerned uh, that it's the republic first. Our identity is we're Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, we can be Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Libertarians, whatever you want to call it. And that's, you know, that's absolutely fine. That's part of, you know, uh, freedom of speech. And that's, you know, uh, the idea that, w that we should be, uh, feel free to disagree. But that needs to be tempered. Um, it's not something that can be quashed by government either, by mm -hmm. the way. You can't just make a policy. You know, that's an abridgment on freedom. So this really has to come organically. It has to be a self-check. And that comes with self-awareness, introspection, and... Um, but I will just say, yes, I am concerned. And that's why I gave today's talk, is to try to uh, awaken um, a spirit of uh, self-awareness among our undergraduates to say, look, you've been handed uh, something extremely valuable that did not come without sacrifice, where people put their own uh, discrete immediate interest secondary to the good of the republic over time, and where we have been uh, careless not to do that, um, we have seen the fallout of that. And just be aware of that. Right. Great. Great advice. And and I think that many people got got that message, uh, and especially the messages of generosity and charity. We, we got into a little bit of that as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the, the French and the several constitutions. Mm -hmm. How do you, what do you think about that in relation, because some people have said, well, it's hey, it's time for a rewrite, you know? Mm -hmm. Every good script needs a rewrite once yeah. in a while. Would you be academically or even personally in favor of a constitutional rewrite at this point? Well, the genius of the founders is that they understood that, and they included within the Constitution itself Article 5, which provides a way to be able to update the Constitution. Now, in their genius, they also made sure that it would require a broad consensus of the kind that I'm talking about to do that. Right. It can't be just one narrow faction saying, I'm not happy, mm -hmm. let's throw up the whole thing because I'm not happy temporarily. Um, so, but if, but, but the only way, if people are generally unhappy with, say, for example, the Electoral College, um, which is a concern that's being echoed on both the left and the right, 
um, at times. Um, there is a way to amend uh, Article 2 of the Constitution, and it's through the amendment process of Article 5. Um, but again, um, that's going to require a broader coming together of a, of a middle-of-the-road consensus on how to do that and, 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 and building that. And we're, uh, I don't think because of the nature of the dialogues that we're having, where they are so um, uh, frightfully, uh, you know, spiteful and, um, and uh, derogatory and accusatory, that um, we can have those kinds of serious discussions. And that's problematic. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Also, are there any models that you feel historically or currently that really have it correct? I mean, that, that we should be looking at and saying, hey, these guys are, are doing a really good job. Any, any good models that we should be taking a look at or a closer look at? So every democracy is going to have its share of problems. Um, the nature of our single-member districts, which are gerrymandered, uh, creates an untenable situation where you have uh, lifelong politicians who it appears in some cases are, you know, uh, manipulating that system to be able to remain in power for as long as possible, which in and of itself, you know, the idea of long tenure is not necessarily the problem, but the motivation behind it is. Mm -hmm. If your purpose is to bring expertise and help to build stability and, you know, that system um, lends itself to that, that's one thing. But if your motivation is simply to remain in power for the sake of power, particularly so that, um, you know, you can get in, in line with a uh, uh, particular faction that is hell-bent on preventing constructive dialogue and that actually serves your interest of staying in power for the sake of power, I think that that's not particularly a good thing either. Yeah. Great. Okay, well, more great discussion mm -hmm. here. And we are about ready for our last musical break of the hour. And again, we're you're here on uh, KSUU Thunder 91.1. And this will be my last sample from the Hilary Hahn album. Uh, and Hilary Hahn is a great violinist who's paired with Corey Smythe on this encore album. And this last piece I'm going to play for you is called Memories. And the composer is Michiru Oshima. And again, this is KSUU Thunder 91.1.
All right. Welcome back. I This is the Apex Hour. My name is Dr. Lynn Vartan, and you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. That last song that you heard was titled Memories. The composer is Michiru Oshima, and that is from the album Hilary Hahn Encores, uh, where hi- great violinist Hilary Hahn plays with Corey Smythe. Um, definitely just one of my all-time favorite uh, violinist and a great album to listen to. We're in the studio finishing out the Apex Hour with Dr. Ravi Roy, who is our 2018 Faculty Distinguished Lecturer. And we like to save the last 10 minutes for some fun stuff to kind of talk a little bit about things that make you happy. So what kind of music do you like to listen to? I think the word is eclectic. Okay. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of the Foo Fighters. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Um, I love the Smashing Pumpkins and were heartbreaking, uh, heartbroken in the early 2000s, when, uh, late 1990s, when they said they were going to disband because they couldn't compete with the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, one of my favorite bands is uh, New Order and Joy Division. Um, you know, that comes from the punk rock of the yeah. New York Dolls and the Ramones and all yeah. the rest of this. Um, but I've always been a big Sting and Police fan cool. as well, uh-huh. particularly as Sting has taken that band, um, you know, post kind of Andy Summers, you right. know, to more jazz mm-hmm. kind of stuff and a more sophisticated sound. So, yeah, I've, 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 um, I've um, uh, always enjoyed uh, them. Out of practicality, um, I've had to amend my tastes uh, to fit that of my uh, daughters, who are huge uh, Kitty Perry fans <laughs> and Ed Sheeran fans, so I have to um, start now enjoying a wider array of music. So less Depeche Mode, more Kitty Perry. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's great. Uh, do you have music on in the home very much? I know in your talk you talked about less for all of us, less TV. Yes. Um, are you a TV watcher or are you a music listener? What's kind of the soundtrack in your house? So, um, yeah, so uh, again, you know, it's, it's pretty much what um, my kids like mm-hmm. uh, uh, oftentimes, although they would probably disagree with that. <laughs> um, they think if I get one song and it's somehow some kind of uh, earth shattering for them that they, <laughs> you know, um, but um, everybody seems to like pit bulls, so <laughs> I guess we can. <laughs> we can all. It's one of the common threads, right? We can yeah. all agree. <laughs> cool. So. How about books? Uh, are you a reader? Or do you read? Mm. M- I mean, I know some academic-minded people read purely academic. Some yeah. like have their mysteries, you know, by the bed that they read. What yeah. What's on your bookshelf these days? Well, I think. Um, to be completely honest with you, if you were to ask me this question a month ago, it would be purely academic stuff related to my field of study. But I've made a conscious decision in the New York to, 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 to widen my, my, reading, um, uh, my reading table. I'm reading a really excellent book right now uh, that is the autobiography of a Russian priest, r- Russian Orthodox priest, who, oh, wow. who documents the trials and tribulations of growing up under Soviet communism and the atrocities that were committed. Oh. Uh, there and the endurance and the uh, and the lack of political freedom, lack of religious freedom that they experienced, um, and it's really kind of put things in perspective um, about how much. Again, I mean, on so many levels. First of all, on a personal level, how thankful uh, to be living in this country where we don't have to worry about such things, but also a thankfulness for the blessings that we have, 
and also a, a kind of reminder that, again, this is uh, a marvelous and wonderful republic in which we live, and we need to be vigilant in making sure that it stays that way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a reminder on so many. It's also an inspiration of the human spirit. Right. And the, uh, and the dedication of, of one man's faith and his uh, faith of his family and um, enduring through all What's kinds of... What's the title? Do you It's remember? called uh, On Earth We're Just Now Learning to Live or something to this effect. On Earth We're Just Now mm. Learning to Live. Yeah. Wow. What a great title. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So. And do you have anything upcoming book-wise that you're <laughs> really excited to read next? Um, to be honest with you, just so I can understand, um, you know... Uh, because, I, like I said, you know, as a political scientist, we're always asked to make predictions. Um, from a strategic point of view, I never um, had any really inclination to read *The Art of the Deal*, but I think I'm going to. Ah, <laughs> cool. Just to just to see what the what the uh, strategic thinking is yeah. behind those who I'm paid to study about. Yeah, great. <laughs> so that's a good one. Everybody should dig mm. into at some point. Yes. Cool. So. What about some memorable advice that you've been given? The the best advice that somebody ever gave you. Do you have anything that comes to mind? Well, um, I one time uh, got to see Charlton Heston uh, at a talk show. Uh Um, uh, um, We were guests of Rick Dees back in the day, and Charlton (laughs) Heston, I'll never forget it. Um, You know, because you just hear that voice of God, you know, from Moses, right? Exactly. But he he had some good advice uh, on that show that I'll never forget, and this is 25 years ago. He said, his father told him, do your best, keep your promises. Oh. Do your best, keep your promises. That's great. You know, and I don't always live up to that, sadly, but I, do, I try to remind myself. Yeah. You know, just do your best, keep your promises. That's, that's fantastic. And would that be the advice that you would give to undergraduates now? Or is there something, maybe two things or one thing that, that you wish you had known as an undergraduate that you might impart to our undergraduates or young people today? So be nice to your professors. <laughs> yes, amen. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> no, I, I, tell my, I tell my students, you know, I may not be the professor you want, but I'm the professor I wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's um, and, and value this time. Don't just take your classes to tick a box and get a grade. Yeah. Um, it really is a remarkable thing, the luxury. For example, when you take a political science class, when you take a music class, that you, because you'll never have this time in your life again. I know they don't believe that, but it's absolutely true. Right. Um, even if you're working, um, you're working for yourself right now, unless you have a family, and we do have a lot of non-traditional students. But I'm saying this mainly to the kind of traditional undergraduate students who, um, you know, who, and I get this. We were all there. You know, we got a paper to write, um, and we don't really, you know, we take the test, and we, but. I'm saying this from personal experience. I wish, particularly in my GE studies, had spent more time mm. in the humanities, for example. I took a class at UCLA on the humanities with the Iliad uh, and um, other texts, Henry David Thoreau, and I got through them fine, but I really now see where the value of those things come in. Right. And, you know, and this is someone where day-to-day I worked to put food on the table in practical ways, but... There is something about the aesthetics that, you know, make us better people, hmm. make us more inquisitive, make us search for deeper meaning that in return helps drives us forward in more meaningful ways. 
And that's the advice that I would give. Embrace that experience because you'll never have a chance until you retire <laughs> exactly. to be able to go back and do those things. And who wants to wait, you know, from the time you're in your 20s all the way until the time you retire to, that's to enjoy these things. So true. Great advice. I say the same thing to students. You're it's hard to believe, but you you won't ever have as much time as you have right now, as hard as that is to believe. Mm -hmm. And my last parting question to you is, what uh, do you think is the most exciting thing in your field right now? What are you most excited about? Well, I'm in the area mainly of uh, politics and public management. And for me, um, the idea to to encourage people to service this is, this is really a remarkable thing. And to think about as leaders and managers, um, whether it's public sector or private sector, really doesn't matter, to create value for that organization and for those working in there. Um, profits will come if an organization is managed well. So much of the time we focus on managing people, we forget that the real, um, the real value and the ability to create value is really about the system of the organization. And, and so I encourage my students to think on a, on a kind of deeper level uh, how to motivate people, how to create value in the lives of the people uh, that they're working with, colleagues. That's why um, SUU is such a marvelous place to work. And I'm not just saying that because I'm here. I chose to come back here. I was away for 12 years. I chose to come back. Um, Higher education in general, and this is true in this country, other countries, um, can oftentimes be unpleasant places to work because the, uh, the, uh, the departments, the separation between administration and faculty and students is so siloed. But here, we have a common mission, which is to create value for the students. And that allows us to uh, work together for that common purpose, and we put aside a lot of the petty kind of arguments that you see in some traditional places. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was um, uh, Nixon's uh, national security advisor became a secretary of state. Um, uh, what's his name? No. Um, but anyway, he uh, when he left the administration and worked uh, back in university, he said, um, you know, the reason why academic politics is so nasty is because the stakes are so low. Well, in our case here at SU, our stakes are high because our stakes are the students and creating value for them. And with that common purpose and common mission, it really helps define for us what we're all about. And we don't have time for petty squabbles and this kind of thing. Not that we agree on everything and not that everything is perfect all the time, but it's a very civilized place. It's a very welcoming place. It's a very collegial place. And I... I mean, I couldn't think of a better place to work because of that. Well, what a great note to end on. I'd like to thank you so much for your time today. And again, you've been listening to Dr. Ravi Roy here on the Apex Hour. I am Lynn Vartan, and I am your host. And with that, we're going to say goodbye for this week. And we'll see you next week right here, 3 p.m., Thunder 91.1. Because I like the music and the people that are on it. Yeah. Turn it up. You must think that I'm new to this. Why couldn't I think of Henry Kissinger? But I have seen this song before. 
I'm never gonna let you close to me Even though you mean the most to me Cause every time I open up it hurts So I'm never gonna get too close to you Even when I mean the most to you In case you go and leave me in the dirt But every time you hurt me the less that I cry And every time you leave me the quicker these tears dry And every time you walk out the less I love you Baby, we don't stand a chance It's sad but it's true I'm way too good at goodbye I'm way too good at goodbye 